This morning, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to, to, to Colossians. Sorry, not second, but Colossians, the second chapter, chapter 2. And that's where we'll be this morning. If you have a hard time finding Colossians, it's kind of halfway-ish, sort of, through the New Testament, I guess. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Somebody told me once that God eats popcorn, and that's how you remember that. G-E-P-C, I don't, I don't know, but now you can find Colossians. This uh, letter Paul wrote to a church in a city that Paul, as, as far as we know, did not visit. We're not aware of his visit to this city, but Paul was visited by Epaphras, a man from Colossae, from this city, while Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and Epaphras evidently sought out advice from Paul regarding some errant teaching that was in the church, and it's not totally clear what that was, but Paul wrote back to the church in Colossae. And he said to them, basically, that the, the grace of justification is indeed glorious. As, as we have seen the past couple of weeks, the grace of justification is a fabulous and glorious truth, and yet it avails us nothing if we think that our works gain God's affection or if we think that our lack of fruit eludes God's attention. So, young Christians, as I read this passage, as you follow along with me, maybe in a Bible, as as you're able, listen along for God nailing something to the cross. Paul says that God nails something to the cross. What is it? What does does God do uh, in that way? What does He nail to the cross? Colossians 2, beginning in verse 6, and also read into chapter 3, just a few verses as well. Therefore, Paul writes, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray that you would grant to us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe your good news in this your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are, of course, the past few weeks working through together some of the big picture truths of ministry, of of what any Bible-believing church ought to be about. Scripture, the doctrine of Scripture. What do we believe about the Bible itself? And and that 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 itself tells us and answers the question of what is true? What, What is truth? How are we to know what is true? And then justification, we looked at the last couple of weeks, that answers the question, what am I going to do with guilt? We all have some sense of guilt, even if it's somewhat suppressed in our modern culture. And yet, what do we do with with the guilt that we see? And then there's going to be glorification. What about the future? What hope can I have looking forward? And these are the things that we maybe tend to think most naturally about as we talk about the Christian life. There's a gap, though, in between. You know, the gospel is for the past and for the future. Yes. But it's also for now. It's also for today. It's not just for past relief and for future hope, but it's also for present change. That's what the gospel is is about. Justification is received by faith alone, but... A faith that remains alone is no true faith at all. And so what comes next? Sanctification. Sanctification is what comes next. That, that answers the question, what about now? How can I really change? Can I change? Should I change? Is there something about me that ought to be different? And if so, how? How does that happen? To sanctify is just a, a big word. You know, we're kind of in this sequence of the ifications, justification, sanctification, glorification. It's just one of these big words that, that means simply to set apart, to show something as distinct, to show someone as, as being set apart and different from the world around. And sanctification, we have to recognize, is one of the really, truly great apologetics for the Christian faith, for the church in the world sanctification is a great apologetic, that is a defense of the Christian faith, because the world will be persuaded by your actions far more than by your words. They will see how you live apart from how you speak, and how you live is what will ultimately matter. The gospel itself is really at stake in how we approach sanctification, because God does not love us because we obey Him, but He does show us the blessings of His love 
through our obedience to His Word. There's something extremely important here because faith alone is not true faith at all. Epaphras had come to Paul, evidently with some concern for what others were trying to impose in his home church in Colossae. Epaphras came to Paul for some advice. Some were imposing something. And you can see it in verse 8. Paul says, Let no one take you captive. And then in verse 16, he says to the Colossians, Let no one pass judgment on you. And then in verse 18, he says to the Colossians, Let no one disqualify you. Some were trying to impose something on these people in this church, and Epaphras was concerned. And so Paul reminds them in the very first chapter of this letter, a verse that we didn't read, he reminds them that it is God who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints by means of justification. And Paul gives us that in verse 13 here, which we did read. He says, you were dead in sin, and God made you alive forgiving your trespasses, canceling your debt, and then, kids, what did he do? He nailed that to the cross and left it there. So given the truth of justification, that, again, remember the the great swap, the great swap of, of our sin for Christ's righteousness, double imputation, double crediting. Given the truth of that, therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, he says to them, so walk in him. Justification must lead to something. By the grace of God, you now have life in justification. So trust that same grace of God to mature that life. Paul says, the grace of God is enough for justification by grace through faith, and it is enough for sanctification as well. So we see here a few things. That you grow from guilt to godliness above worldly aspiration. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So something had Epaphras worried. Somebody was attempting to to counter the gospel with something that they wanted to impose upon the Colossians. And we get some indication by the way that Paul responds in this letter. Someone was trying to take them captive, not literally by trying to bind their hands and their feet and take them away to physical servitude, but rather by trying to bind their minds, apparently, to persuade them to think the way that these people thought. That's what happens when someone tries to take you captive in this sort of way. They try to persuade you to think in the way that they think according to their own worldly aspiration. Philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, the elemental spirits of the world. Now, now that's a, a phrase that doesn't necessarily really register with us. What Paul seems to have been talking about there was kind of a part of the religious syncretism that, that was at work in the first century world. The elemental spirits of the world were the, the gods, in quotes, the little g gods of the 
the elements of the world, earth, wind, fire, water, the, the, the physical elements of the world, perhaps were seen to have some sense of deity about them. And, and Paul is saying to them, you've, you've put away those things. Don't let someone else take you captive with those same things. It's simply a reliance on worldly elements to gain a sense of security, almost as though they wanted the sacraments, and so they made up their own, something that we can see and touch and feel and taste. These people aspire to some worldly way of feeling approved in the sight of God. You know, one who takes captive in this sort of way seeks to control. They want to control your conscience out of their own fear of the unknown because they don't recognize and understand what truly is truth. And so they come up with some worldly aspiration to do it. And so they say things like this. There's only one way to do it, so do it my way. And that's what they mean by that. Do it my way. We're going, in other words, something like this. We're going to do church right. Finally, we're going to do church right. Some churches are planted in that way and begin that way in in rebellion of what's behind them. We're going to do what's right, finally, as though we're now a new modern reformation. We're going to get it right. So come and do it our way. We're going to serve communion this way. We're going to do music that way. We're going to have dress code or not dress code. You know, even trivial little things like that. Some years ago, some folks visited our church for a little while and thought about joining, and finally they didn't. And their expressed reason was the pastors wear suits and ties on Sunday morning. And we want a church where dress is not an issue. You hear the irony in that? I mean, we don't like what you wear, so we're going to go where we don't have to care what people wear. It makes no sense. There's only one right way, so do it my way. Such worldly aspiration, such binding is, Paul says, not according to Christ. You grow in godliness above such worldly aspiration. And you grow from guilt to godliness beyond religious observance as well. Verse 16, several verses here. Paul says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of certain religious habits, food and drink certain festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, certain days that that people wanted to observe religiously, diets and days. These were Jewish observances carried over from the Old Testament perhaps and some even elaborated beyond that that were used by many people to regulate their life. And it was a way to, to express and to demonstrate that one was truly and really and fully committed to Christ. Even in the first century, people did that, and people do that all the time today as well. We have some sense that we've got to do something else religiously in order to show how committed we are. Or verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on certain religious disciplines like asceticism or angel worship or visions He says, you know, asceticism is a lifestyle characterized by abstinence from certain worldly pleasures. If it's pleasurable for you, then you must abstain from it. You must live an ascetic life, refusing to enjoy anything that is worldly in any sort of way. Um, And 
Paul says, you should let no one lead you astray by insisting on Jesus plus something here. Don't let anyone disqualify you by declaring to be out of bounds what God has proclaimed as good. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. That's so our inclination to simply deny this and to refuse that and to ignore this and to avoid that in order to narrowly pull ourselves into a small room, narrowing down the definition of proper Christianity, as it were, until the only real Christians are the ones who are in the room with us. Because everybody else, well, they do those things and we don't. These, Paul says, have an appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The indulgence of the sinful nature, that is. The implication Paul has here is that our sinful nature must be stopped. The indulgence of the sinful nature must come to a stop. But how? What does have such value as Paul calls it here? What are we to do? He says, you're to grow from guilt to godliness out of sovereign grace, rather. Verse 6. At the very beginning here, you, you see his indication of it. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were, to, you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Do you hear the foundation of maturity there? You received Christ. You were rooted in Him. You were built up in Him. You were established in the faith. In other words, justification is the foundation for sanctification. One comes first, and the other follows quickly on its heels. And Paul says, now out of thanksgiving for all of that, He says, you walk in Him. You know, the entirety of the Christian life, you could consider it to be living out the implications of your justification. God has taken your sin upon Him, and He has credited you with His righteousness. Now, what are the implications of that? The entirety of the Christian life is living out the implications of that brilliant and glorious truth. There are throughout Scripture, throughout Paul's letters and elsewhere, indicatives before imperatives. Do you know what I mean by that, you grammarians among us? The indicatives of Paul saying, this is true, this is who you are. Now because of that, do this. The indicatives come before the imperatives. The the identity comes before the commands. So you see what Paul does. He says, don't let others take you captive. Don't let others pass judgment on you. Don't let others disqualify you because you have Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwells and you have been filled in Him. What else do you need? The fullness of deity dwells in Him and you have been filled in Him What else is there for you? The same grace by which you have life is the same grace by which you gain maturity. And so in verse 11 and following, you see what Paul does here. He begins to emphasize our union with Christ. After all, what happened 
when you met Christ. Paul says you were circumcised, putting off the sinful nature by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, you were united with Him. You were put together with Him. And therefore, His circumcision, His shedding of blood, His death is your death. You were united to Him in circumcision. And you were united to Him in baptism. He says you were buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him. Theologians think of baptism and and call it, and this is a a biblical phraseology, baptism is a sign and a seal. It's a sign in that it signifies the washing away of sins and that we belong to God, as, as we've seen moments ago right here before us. It signifies that truth, that we have our sins washed away and that we belong to God. But it also is a seal of gospel promise. We were reminded of this beautifully in the Presbytery meeting that John mentioned a while ago by a candidate who described it this way. So, well, he said that baptism is a seal in the same sense as in ancient days a king would write a letter and, and seal the envelope with a, a wax, a drop of wax, and stamp it. And that envelope was closed. It was sealed shut with the stamp of the king to indicate what was inside, to guarantee in a sense, what was inside. In other words, God is at work. He has sealed us in baptism with the promise of His gospel. Look at verse 19. Paul says that, that the one who would mislead you is not holding fast to the head, that is to Christ, from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, and here it is, listen, grows with a growth that is from God. God is at work. God is at work having united you with Christ. God now is granting growth that is from God Himself. You know, growth in maturity in the Christian life is expected. It is expected. James makes that very clear in his letter to us. You know that. Growth in maturity is expected. And some things are of no value against the sinful nature. Paul writes at the end of what we read. But, chapter 3, he begins to take a turn here. And he says, what? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see the beauty of that? Perfectly fitting that we sang a new song this morning in two ways. Not only did that song, Psalm 32, remind us of our being hidden in God, that we have a hiding place in God, but also at the same time, singing a new song is kind of clunky, isn't it? I mean, you didn't know how to sing it. And so as you were coming along in the song, after you heard it sung a few times, you begin to figure out how to sing it and to follow along. And gradually you put yourself beside it and you begin to sing more and more effectively. But at first you don't know how to do it. But that psalm shows us, that reminds us, that we have a hiding place in God. And Paul says that very thing here. Verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In the beginning, remember Genesis 3, what happened with the first man and the, and the first woman when they 
They ate the fruit. They rebelled against God. They turned away from them. And then what did they do? They hid. They hid themselves away from God. And now Paul says, you are now, sinner as you are, hidden in God. And there's the gospel of the hope of justification for us. You are hidden in God. And because you will appear with Christ in glory, he says, now the indicatives have been, now come the imperatives. Now put off and put on. Verse 5, we didn't read this together, but Paul writes, put to death, therefore put off what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying, obscene talk. He strings out this awful string of things, worldly, earthly characterizations of those who live in the world, of of our old nature, our sinful nature. And he says, put these things to death. Put them off. Now, did you notice as you heard kind of the string of those things and as you see them there in the Bible before you, what do they kind of resemble from the Old Testament? Well, the Ten Commandments. I mean, sexual immorality and impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk and lying. Paul is saying, put those things off. Don't do those things, he says. And then he says, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on what is godly, compassion and kindness and humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and above all, love. Sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? Which Paul gave to the Galatians. And so Paul puts these two things together saying, because of this, because of your justification, the indicative of who you are in Christ, now the imperative. Put off, put to death these things and put on, bring to life these things of the Spirit. Now, we have kind of a hard time with this. I mean, justification is something that's, in some ways, it's sort of easier for us to digest because, well, like we said, there's nothing for us to do, right? But this one causes us a little bit of trouble because some of us want to be told what to do and what not to do. And so we take this and we think, oh, great, now here it is. Here's the list. And now, if I just don't do these things and I do these things, then everything will be fine. And such a person thinks that God accepts them because of what they do or they don't do. And we know because of justification that's simply not true. You know, we want to put some extra constraints upon ourselves. If you want to be a good Christian in quotes, a good Christian, so to speak, then don't do immoral stuff, right? I mean, it seems that simple to some of us because we want to be told what to do or what not to do. But the big problem with that is that we take sanctification and we put it before justification. And by living in that way, we are saying that our justification depends on our sanctification. In other words, to cut the big words, our status before God depends on how we live before God. And that's a lie. That's simply not true. On the other hand, some of us want to not be told what to do. 
Some of us don't like that. It, it just feels wrong to us. And such a person, I would suggest, thinks that God doesn't care what they do in many ways. You know, we want to take Scripture and say, well, that's great. I love the doctrine of Scripture, and, and that tells me what's true, and I want to know the Bible, and that's wonderful. Give me that, and give me justification. That's fantastic, too. That's good news for me, and I love it. Now I'm free in Jesus, I know. But now don't tell me anything else. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what not to do. The big problem with that is that it's putting justification at the end of the line as though it's all that matters, and it's simply not. As James tells us, not contradicting with Paul at all, but James emphasized to us what? He says, a faith that has no works is no faith at all. There must be something that comes after justification. So you can't do either of those things. And so Paul goes on in chapter 3, verse 15. He follows this saying, Now let, us, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now let me go back to that song, Psalm 32, that we sang so clumsily a while ago. And make use of that because it's so useful. Because that's sort of what Paul is saying here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It takes some time to sit in the means of grace. It takes some time to sit in the means of grace so that we can grow in that grace. And the more that you engage with the means of grace, just like the more often you sing a song you gain some facility with it. You, you begin to see how to step, how to go forward. You do it clumsily at first, and as you do it, you grow in your ability, as it were, to walk in tune with the song. The more you engage with the means of grace, the more grace you know. It's, it's kind of like compounding interest. Over the course of time, it begins small and it grows large over the course of time. It's kind of like couples, married couples growing together in life, in marriage. They've been married for five, ten years. They don't look anything alike. And after 50 or 60 years, it's hard to tell them apart because they've grown together over the course of time and they almost begin to actually facially look like each other. Have you seen that before? That's, that's sort of what happens here. And Paul goes on in verse 17. He says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What you do, and Christian, you must do something. Do it in the name that you already have. Just like this baptism that we saw a while ago and participated in by remembering how God has called us by placing a name on our head in love so that we then in love can live as is fitting that name. Paul says, whatever you do, do it in the name of the one who has called you. And the more that you sit in the means of grace, the more in some mysterious way God brings about a growth that is from God. 
The first car that I ever owned myself, bought with my own money, I was in college. Until then, my brother and I had shared a, a hand-me-down uh, car from our grandmother. That's a whole other story that I'm sure you'll hear sometime. But the first car that I ever actually bought with my own money, it cost me $600. This was in 1990, and it was a 1976 Oldsmobile Cutlass, Carolina Blue, with a white top and white vinyl interior. It was a great car. It was 14 years old at the time, and it worked pretty well. And I drove that my last year in college, and then for my first two years, out of college, I drove that car for three years, and, and finally, that thing had so many miles on it and so many years on it that it just stopped working. Now, I lived, I lived in Houston, Texas, and I was an engineer, and I worked in a laboratory with other engineers, guys that loved to work on cars, loved to get their hands greasy and dirty and understood internal combustion engine and ele- electronics and all that kind of thing. And so we would take my car and, and their cars back into the the lab in the back of the facility and, and put it up on jacks at lunchtime and, and work on cars, We'd change the starter or whatever things that we were doing with it. And my car finally posed a problem that these engineers couldn't figure out. I didn't know much about electricity. I think that was the problem. The car simply wouldn't start. And my engineer friends worked on it and worked on it, and they couldn't figure it out. They were so frustrated. The car was sitting stranded at the office for three weeks. And I was walking to work from my apartment two miles away. And finally, I'd had enough. And two guys that were in the office, Javier and Luis, who were custodial workers in the office, had been bugging me about the car. We said, the car is stranded there. It's stuck. When, when do you want to sell it? Will you sell it to us? And I said, no, I won't sell it. Finally, after three weeks, I said, okay, it's yours. $100. You can have it for $100. An hour later, the car was gone. All these bachelor degree engineers couldn't figure out how to make this car go. And within an hour, two people who knew what they were doing, I don't know what they did. The car was gone. It was mysteriously gone. It was dead, and now it lived. It was useless, and now it was something. It had no life, and now it was of use. Something mysterious happened at the hand of one who knew just what to do. And Paul says to the Colossians and to you and me the same thing. He says, you've been justified by grace through faith. You are who you are because God has put a name on your head. Now, you don't know how this works. It's a mystery to you. But put off what's old Put off what's earthly and worldly. Put it to death. And put on what's new. Put on the fruit of the Spirit as God grants it to you. Put yourself in the means of grace. And over the course of time, you don't know how it happens. But God will, as singing a clunky song at first, bring you alongside the notes as He plays and cause you to walk in His way. You received Him. You were rooted in Him. You were built up in Him. You were established by Him and taught of Him. Now, walk in Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 
Oh Lord, we pray that you would grant to us the grace of sanctification, that you would cause us, recognizing who you have made us to be in your gospel, that you would cause us to walk in your way by grace, to follow after your word and to trust, O oh Lord, that by your spirit you cause us to grow. Would you do that so that we might reflect the glory of your name even as you have called us to be your children? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>